So, uh, well done so far. And uh, I'm always uh, reminded on these retreats, they're something I find very uh, inspiring and a really wonderful way to spend time. And at the same time, they are, um, uh, you know, they're demanding things to do. They're demanding things to do. I mean, a retreat is not like a holiday, is it? I mean, I'm telling you something you will have discovered today. Um, and so it's, it's helpful to know that. It's not, it, it's not the kind of thing that's necessarily supposed to be all hearts and flowers every moment. We're actually uh, doing something that's really quite challenging. And uh, one of the challenges is that, that we're taking away our usual props. So quite often in our life, you know, if we feel a little bit bored, a bit tired, a bit anxious, we've got all kinds of ready things to do. You know, I feel a bit bored, look at the phone, feel a bit anxious, give someone a ring, um, and, uh, you know, feel a bit low, play some nice music, cheer me up. And so we have all kinds of ways of working with our um, states of mind that we may not even really notice because they become quite habitual. And here, uh, so many of those things are, are not here. And so we're, um, in a sense, falling back on another kind of resources. And, and there, is, there is a real challenge in doing that. And we can be uh, faced with the more difficult parts of our experience that sometimes we would... Uh, deal with habitually so quickly we may not even notice they're here. Yeah? So again, you may be in all kinds of different places, but if uh, as you come to the end of the day, particularly the first day of the retreat is notoriously often a, a challenging day. If you're coming thinking, gosh, this is hard work, <laughs> um, then uh, you're in good company, yeah? not just with your fellow friends on this particular retreat, but with uh, uh, retreatants in general over the years and decades at Gaia House and elsewhere. Yeah? So well done for really sticking with that. Well done for turning towards those things that are difficult. Um, and I really, really uh, appreciate and encourage your efforts with that. It's really uh, significant. There's a, a Thai teacher who talks about the, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. You know, there's suffering that leads to more suffering, that keeps us spinning around in a circle. And then there's uh, the suffering that leads to the end, when we begin to stop and still and, you know, bear with our patterns without just habitually running from them. Um, so this evening, uh, I wanted to talk to you uh, as best I can about the whole thing. That makes sense. It's a big topic, isn't it? The whole thing. But um, I get the feeling, you know, my, what, I, what was with me is I was thinking, well, you're not going to be on this retreat very long. We've got a weekend. We want to sort of, you know, really... Uh, in a sense, pack quite a lot in. And so I wanted to give you a feeling of the whole of the path as is understood in the Buddhist tradition, which is called the, uh, the Eightfold Path. So this is really what is the inspiration for my talk tonight. But right from the outset, I want to 
encourage you to see this as an, uh, an invitation to your own reflections. Yeah, an invitation to your own reflections. So you can see the Eightfold Path rather than uh, certainly a sort of framework of beliefs that you think, yeah, okay, I agree with that, don't agree with that. Or you see yourself just as a, someone who kind of passively receives that. Okay, Eightfold Path, yeah, hearing that, hearing that, hearing that. What's really useful is when it stimulates your own thoughts and your own reflections and your own investigation into your life. So you could almost see the Eightfold Path as uh, at least eight, because they break into different sub uh, sections, but at least eight questions to reflect upon, eight questions to ask yourself, eight questions to, um, to bear in mind. And I find that very a very nice perspective, a very helpful perspective. It's quite empowering. You know, think, okay, these are questions that I can then reflect on and really think through rather than ready-made answers. Good. So the first of these uh, areas is uh, what's called right view or wise view. And this is really about seeing clearly, which we could say is at the heart of what we're doing when we practice meditation. We're not practicing this kind of meditation to simply be more calm or relaxed or create a temporary nice state. We practice this to see more clearly, to see into the nature of things, to see into the nature of ourselves and our sense of the world which is uh, constructed moment to moment. So we're really seeing more and more deeply. And there are all kinds of things we might see in meditation and in our practice. But just to mention a couple. The first uh, thing I really encourage us to contemplate is the consequences of our actions. The consequences of our actions. So this is really about being more and more sensitive to the way that different kind of actions make us uh, feel differently in the moment or give us a different sense of what the world is like or what we are like in the moment. And so I'll just give you an example, which is the example of being generous. So notice what it's like when you have a moment of generosity that you act from. Just see what happens to your heart when you do that. It's a good question, okay? This becomes a question. What does the heart feel like when we act in a generous way? Um, so for me I've noticed this uh, uh, sometimes when I can feel quite preoccupied if I'm feeling quite preoccupied and stuck in my own stuff and it's like I'm just thinking about me and my problems and all the things I'm uh, consumed with and then if I see somebody who needs a little bit of help and I say, yeah, would you like some help? It's very interesting just to notice what effect that has on the, the feeling of being separate and generosity, those small acts, it might be helping somebody with some luggage. You know, it might be as you're, you know, when you're walking out of the hall here at the end of a sitting and there's two of you and you're just kind of, who's going to get to the door first? <laughs> and you just kind of stop and pause and you might just allow the other person to go. It just it's noti- It's very helpful to notice the effect that has on our heart. 
Because for me what that does, it makes me feel more connected. So much of the struggle we can feel in life is very often when we feel separate, alone and isolated and our sense of the world is that it's a world of competing beings. It's like it's a hostile world. I'm not going to let them go through the door first. <laughs> get out of my way, I want to get through the door. You, know? you can feel that even as I'm saying, it's like, okay, the ho- whole feeling of what the world is like, the world is a really competitive place and we've better watch out because someone else might get to the door before us. <laughs> it's like, oh. Uh, even just speaking that, I can feel there's a little kind of tingling through my body. It just feels a bit on alert. But there's that other feeling of, oh, okay, so would you like to go first? <laughs> would you like some help? So this becomes a kind of contemplation. Uh, very, uh, you know, to relate this, this is a kind of interpretation of the traditional teaching on karma. You know, I know this word karma about actions which have consequences. But to see that again as a question rather than a, a sort of abstract theory that you think, oh, well, what does that mean and what am I supposed to believe here and if I do this, that's supposed to happen in the future but I can't see the connection. But see it as a contemplation where in your own heart the quality of your actions and see how they give birth to particular fruit. There's a, a story about uh, you know, somebody goes to a new town and says, says to the gatekeepers of the new town, what are the people like here in this town? He says, well, where were they like where you came from? They said, well, they were horrible. Real mean-spirited bunch. Couldn't trust any of them. Terrible. And, he, and the guy says, well, you, you'll probably find people here. Much the same. <laughs> And it goes in, and somebody else comes up to the gatekeeper and says, I want to come in. What are the people like in this town? And he says the same question. What were they like where you came from? Oh, they were wonderful. They were loving and generous and kind and wonderful. Never met a more beautiful bunch of people. And the guy says, Well, you probably find them the same here too. Is <laughs> this feeling this kind of story about how we, you know, through our expectations might create, you know, almost that creating that feeling. I've sometimes gone to a party, you know, going to the party, I'm convinced there's nobody here I want to talk to. Why do I want to go here? I won't have any, anything in common with them. And that, how that can become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas if I go in with the view, oh gosh, I'm going here, maybe there's other people, they're probably a bit shy like me. Maybe they're a bit anxious about it. Maybe I'll say, oh, how are you? Bit funny to talk to a stranger, isn't it? And see what happens anyway. <laughs> you know, you might get different responses. But this is the con- this is a contemplation, a lifetime contemplation of actions and consequences. You know, in a sense of really taking care of that and noticing what makes us feel more connected, what makes us feel more separate. A uh, another aspect of this wise view. Um, is uh, this teaching on the four noble truths. And so I'm not even going to go through the four because we're going to cover a whole range of things today, but I just want to give you a flavor of it. To notice the patterns in your life 
where you feel like you're going round in circles. Yeah? So this is what I would invite you to notice again and again and again. There's a pattern that I sense is really quite deep in the human psyche of this going round in circles and it goes like this. It's like, oh, this is going to be wonderful. This is exactly what I need. This is going to be fantastic. And then, oh, it's not what I quite thought or it's changed or, oh dear, that's been a bit disappointing. Oh, but don't worry. This is the thing. This is going to be so much better and this is great. And now I've arrived and, oh, (laughs) what's going on? Oh no, don't worry about that. It wasn't those two. It was this one. And we go round. So note, this is a very deep pattern in us. So you might do that with, I mean, let's give you some examples. Of course, very famously, we do that with relationships. If you think about the first, I don't know what it would be, days or weeks of a relationship. You're in, the, this is that phase there. Why, you never guess this person I've met and they're just amazing. Da, 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 da. And then, oh, they have moods like me. <laughs> They're not always this shining person. And oh, socks on the floor. That's not supposed to happen. Moods. Think differently from me. And in a relationship, again, I'm not suddenly turning into an amateur relationship counsellor. But if I were, I would say actually this, this point is rather interesting. So when you've gone round the circle once and you've been disappointed, <laughs> uh, you've then got a choice. And it, of course, wisely, it might be actually... I mean, of course, it's very possible to say this isn't this isn't perhaps a person for me, and you know, we move on. But it, that's also a point where you might then the relationship might grow into something a little deeper and more real. When you're moving beyond the feeling of you're everything I'd ever dreamed of, and you're everything I'd ever dreamed of, and then the harsh reality that two human beings <laughs> sort of bump into each other. But then there is a you know. This is a hopeful message, by the way. There can certainly be a kind of deeper love, commitment, things that then grow out of that. As those, uh, the, the over-projection of the early romance fades. Something more real can really appear. But you can do that with work as well, can't you? I've got this wonderful job. Come on, let's celebrate. It's been fantastic. And oh, they've given me a lot of work. And a restructuring and... Yeah. And this isn't to disappoint, by the way. This, whenever I talk about the, this kind of teaching, I have to be really clear, this is not pessimistic. Because you can hear a pessimistic teaching, oh, nothing ever lasts, everything's disappointing. <laughs> not going to guy a house again, who wants that? But it's not saying that. What it's saying is, look at the over-investment, over-projection. That's the key. That's where the real struggle comes in. Yeah, it's it's in that initial point where we're not just saying, "Oh, this is nice, this is lovely with all its mixture," but it's somehow the answer with a capital A. This is what's going to make me whole and complete and wonderful, and this is really going to be some final place I can rest. It's whenever we do that, which is a kind of mental move. The disappointment is inevitable, right? And the encouragement, again, this is a, a, the question I would say that comes out of this, is look at what's underneath that pattern. And I would suggest very often it's a sense of lack. Some fundamental feeling that I'm not enough. Okay, I'm not enough now. So what's going to complete me? Deep down, I'm not enough. 
Okay? Relationship, job, success, achievement, material wealth. We can try all of those things. But if, if they are trying to fill a more basic feeling of not enough, then they don't work. Well, they work for a bit. So this is what our spiritual practice is doing, I think, is shedding light on the basic not enough and instead sensing a basic wholeness, a basic, ah, maybe we are okay after all. <laughs> yeah. So it's not so much I get really depressed because all my efforts to prove myself come to nothing, but actually there's a profound contentment because I realized I didn't need to prove myself in the first place. I didn't need to find a perfect relationship. There's a basic wholeness. And from that place, I can tolerate the reality of relationships with their joys and sorrows and mixture. Yeah, it's a different place. So I really encourage that feeling of a basic okayness, a basic sense of enough. And uh, you know, sometimes we touch into it, sometimes it can feel elusive. But you can almost feel it just in a single breath, breathing in, breathing out. You can play with it, you might use the word enough. Yeah. It's enough, it's already here. It's another useful phrase, it's already here. And uh, you know, depending on how we use that practice, there might be the thing, you might say that it's already here. A little voice might pop up, no it's not. <laughs> I need to find it somewhere else. So it's a practice, right? It's a practice. But we're coming back to this recognition. Ah, that the, um, going to sound a little technical now, but the, the, the existential lack which can drive a frenzied busyness is a misperception. My goodness. It's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> you know, but we can, in other words, this basic feeling of lack is, is actually not the case. Yeah, you can really let go of that. Oh gosh. So um, this uh, first contemplation is wise view. It leads very neatly onto the next stage in the path, which is called wise intention. So this is more we're now from this way of seeing the world. How we see the world is really fundamental. It's going to have a big impact on what we decide to do. Yeah? I always say that to people. If you have the view that I can only be happy if I've got three million pounds in the bank, that view is going to very directly trigger a whole pro series of projects. Okay? How am I going to get three million? Yeah? So the view that I've been talking about is, gosh, I keep getting caught in circles. But there is a way of freedom. Right? So this is what I would call a wise view. So this view then leads to certain intentions. And the intentions uh, that the Buddha suggests it leads to are intentions of love and of uh, non-cruelty or compassion and uh, of letting go or renunciation. So I love this feeling that actually these intentions are not things that we should do but they are intentions that make sense when, we're clear, when we are seeing clearly. They are intentions that make sense when we are seeing clearly. All right? 
When I remember that I'm a mortal being, you know, I'm not going to be here forever on this earth, right? Life is short. Uh, and when I think about that and I think, how do I really want to live? What, what is really important to me? Words like love and compassion just quite naturally begin to echo. It's like this, you know, how do we want to use this precious time that we have? And uh, so I can have moments, and you might even, I don't know if you, what the sky's like tonight, but to me sometimes it's almost that moment when you see the vastness of the sky and all the stars there, and you're just feeling how extraordinary it is to be alive, and ah, vast sky. And it can feel, yeah, this is how I want to live, with love and compassion. And then what happens to me, I don't know if it happens to you, but something comes into my life and that vast perspective becomes more shrunk and small. You know, the <laughs> sort of thing that would happen is my broadband bill goes up. And I think, how can they do that? That's disgraceful. That's disgusting. I'm going to give them a ring. And, and you know, my whole feeling of the, the, the sort of limited time and the world being vast and all that, it shrinks. So if your experience is anything like mine, we can expect it to be vast and contract, to expand and contract. I wonder if that's what our, our life is a little bit like. If you've been uh, bereaved, sometimes in the midst of a bereavement, I've certainly seen friends of mine who've been bereaved, that there can be a, a clarity around that. You know, they've lost somebody and there's a deep sadness and grief and a feeling of, God, I, actually, I really know what matters now. I really know what matters. And so one inspiration I have for doing this kind of thing is you know, not to wait for the more tragic things in life to remind me of what's really important. Yeah. So again, if I perhaps slightly rephrase that as a question, but what kind of intentions make sense when we're seeing clearly? You know, is, it, is it the case that love, compassion letting go, is, it, is this really what's helpful? But have it as a reflection, <laughs> you know, have it as a reflection and see. Um, so this then leads out into the next three elements of the path. So this is wise view, wise intention, right view, right intention. And the next three are speech, action and livelihood. In other words, how we see the world and then how we intend and now it's really getting into our everyday life. So what does this mean in terms of how I speak, in terms of what I do, in terms of how I earn my living? So when you uh, think about, say, uh, wise speech to begin with, there are certain words and guidelines that are quite helpful as a starting point, like to be truthful, to be meaningful, to not have harsh speech, um, and not, not have divisive speech. Okay, so that, that's a nice start. But when we, we're really in the middle of something quite difficult, I think that's when wise speech becomes a real question. Because it can't mean, in my understanding, uh, pink, fluffy cloud speech. Little phrase I have. I don't know if you feel it. I have sort of tried it inadvertently sometimes. Like I'm going to go through the world and I'm just going to say nice things about nice people and nice events all the time. You know, how are you? 
you look nice, oh, you look nice, I'm nice, everything's nice. <laughs> and you can keep it up for a little bit, but unfortunately, you know, not everything is nice. <laughs> so it becomes a little bit unreal. And then, oh, what happened to, what happened to wise speech then? So I think when we think about how to really communicate wisely, that there's also something about being really authentic and really uh, trusting our own uh, experience. And uh, there are all kinds of uh, sort of ways that people have really looked into this. There's something called nonviolent communications, a whole sort of programs about it that I think are really good. I just wanted to give you one example. This is not, not perhaps particularly from Buddhist teaching, but it's, it's just a way I've found useful. Um, notice, you know, when you feel very uh, stressed, which we all do from time to time, that our thoughts will become more absolute. And I think if you pay attention, you'll notice that your speech becomes more absolute too. So the example is, you're feeling stressed out, and you say to somebody, you never help me out. You're always letting me down. Yeah? Um, this is absolutely terrible. You know, you've let me down again and you're always doing it. I don't know if you notice that pattern of speech. I mean, you might think, no, 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 I never say anything like that. I don't know. Uh, but I think we probably do, <laughs> if you notice, particularly in the heat of it, right? When you're in the heat of something. And uh, yeah, if, if you really are fortunate enough not to be familiar with that kind of speech pattern, then your homework is to watch an episode of EastEnders and they produce it for us three or four times a week. You know, those soaps are built on that kind of communication. So what would be wise speech then when what you really want to say is you never help me out, you're always letting me down, is you dig underneath and feel that. So what are you feeling? What kind of feeling is in the body underneath that? All these practices we're doing, we bring the attention into the body, you can start to know. And the truth is you're feeling overwhelmed. You're feeling uh, like you could really do with some help. So then you might say something like, God, at the moment I'm feeling really overwhelmed by everything. Would you be able to help me? Now, to me that's wise speech. I don't know if you can see the difference. But I think if you think about this as a cumulative thing in your life, if you gradually, slowly, time after time, move away from the kind of speech that's full of you know, really quite a lot of blame and judgment, you never do this, you ought to do that, this is wrong, uh, you know, there's, nothing, there's nothing good about you, that kind of thing, real condem condemnatory speech, you move towards that more, uh, I guess we call these days emotionally intelligent speech. This will have a lovely positive spiral for your relationships with friends, family, colleagues, everybody. It's a really lovely, I mean this is a very practical way of practicing the path. And it's tough. It's tough when times are really difficult, yeah? When we feel kind of okay, yes, I can find that. When it's really difficult, the old patterns come up. So like all of these, uh, uh, like all of these elements of the path, there are practice. This is what I love about our meditation practice. I'm with the breath and I wander off. And I begin again. Why speech is the same. Intention to speak with kindness and honesty and truth and get it wrong. 
and we start again. You know, we don't have to. I love this sense. You don't have to do it all perfectly, but it's a cultivation. This path is something we cultivate and look at and contemplate. I mean, that's a lifetime's work. How do we speak wisely in a way that we can speak our authentic truth without condemning others? How do we listen deeply to those who are very different without losing our own truth? How do we know when to speak up, when to be a bit quiet, let it go? I don't know if you agree, but I think the world in general needs these skills right? <laughs> at the moment. I'm not sure collectively how well we're doing on that at the moment. <laughs> so, but it's something we can, we can cultivate and learn. You know, notice the speech that splits the world into them and us. You're with me or you're against me. Notice the speech that heals. Yeah. So then that, that uh, leads also to actions, you know, the wise actions, which are the, uh, we can talk about the precepts that Paul mentioned yesterday. Four questions. How can I live in a way that harms less? You know, the first precept is about non-violence, non-harming. Ongoing reflection. It's not like, here's the answer, this is how I do non-harming. But it's useful as a reflection. How do I live in a way where I harm less? There's a beautiful, uh, I don't know, you probably uh, don't know him actually because he died some time ago, but there's an actor called Paul Eddington. He was in... Um, uh, yes, uh, minister, yes, prime minister, if you've ever seen those uh, repeats of those. But uh, he, he was very committed to this non-harming. And I think when he was dying, somebody said to him, you know, how would you like to be remembered? And he said something like, I'd like to be remembered as someone who, you know, who did little harm. He says, I look around the world, I see a lot of people doing a lot of harm. I'd like to be remembered as someone who, yeah, who tried his best not to harm others. They're lovely. <laughs> Uh, aspiration yeah. and again all kinds of areas so some people doing these kind of practices would look at their diet you know that, that's a contemplation yeah. some people would be vegetarian some people not some people be vegan some people not but it's a, it's a contemplation how would you want to you may start to you know say say look at animals differently if that spirit of, of uh, ahimsa, non-harming, is there, it, it can lead, lead in that way. Just one example, just one example. You know, it becomes a, an attitude that can infuse what you do, a sort of reverence for, for life. Um, the second question then is, uh, is around not taking the not given. So on a gross level, that's easy not to steal. Well, you know, most of the time anyway. <laughs> on a subtle level, it's an ongoing thing. Uh, so uh, a really helpful thought that comes out of that is how to live more lightly on the earth. Uh, some teachers would say that if we are really over-consuming, it's kind of taking what is not really given, you know, legally speaking, we may be able to do it. But I don't know about for you, but for me, I, I actually find it really opens my heart, this question. I'm, 
mentioned yesterday, of voluntary simplicity, to live more simply, to live more lightly. It's, it's, it actually, uh, even just those words, that's oh, quite freeing really. You know, I don't need, certainly don't need 12 cars. <laughs> I don't know where I got 12 from. But you know, you can get into that, that ideology. You can't, if I had one car, that would be nice. Two cars would be even better. Three cars, one for every day of the week. You, you just don't need it. <laughs> you know? um, so again, there's the question, well, what does that mean for each of you? you know, I, I mean, I'm not, what do they call it these days? Virtue signalling. Hopefully I'm not virtue signalling now, but I, I actually don't drive at all, but that's more because I live in cities. You know, Other people do find it useful living in countryside places or in cities, a different lifestyle. So I'm not, I do all kinds of other things. I'm, do you know what I mean? I'm not trying to, oh, look at me, I don't drive. <laughs> um, so I don't mean it like that at all. But I just mean, but it's a very helpful thing to just contemplate our lifestyle. What lifestyle do we aspire to? What lifestyle might really give us the deepest joy? What lifestyle might be kind of just a bit easier, really? As an, I mean, again, to speak very practically, there's an awful lot of people in our society who can earn really quite a lot of money, but they end up on a kind of wheel because they get a lifestyle that needs all that money. <laughs> And then they've got to keep working harder and harder and harder and you can t- you get to a place. And it's quite nice to talk to you guys because sometimes people can get to 45, 50 and think, what was all that about? <laughs> so it's quite nice, you know, in your sort of teens and 20s to think, okay, well, how much of that do I want to, <laughs> you know, how much of that do I really need? And I mean this as a contemplation. I'm not suggesting, I mean, I, you know, live in a, Nice house in Nottingham. I don't live in a caravan. I'm not suggesting that we all do that. You know, some people do. And they, they may take that kind of contemplation. So it's not about being puritanical, or but it's just a lovely contemplation. What lifestyle could really feed this joy? Yeah. The more to go back to the wise view, the more we're in touch with this basic wholeness, this basic sense of okay. The impulse to overconsume can really lessen. Yeah. Just a contemplation. Uh, relationships. How can we cultivate relationships that are non-harming, non-exploitative, you know, in our sexual relationships, romantic relationships? I'll leave that as a question. Feels like such a massive question to sort of just throw in a quick answer, but you know, it's, it's there as a, it's just helpful as a question. You know, what, what's what's really going to enable me to, you know, live with respect and uh, and love? You know, is uh, areas of our life where we project so much hope and so and and so much, ah, oh, you know, so much longing in there, very understandably, and also areas where we can be harmed and, and feel so much pain. So it really requires some, some care. You know, and it's really part of this spiritual path. Here we're living as monks and nuns for the weekend, but it doesn't mean we are for the rest of the time. So again, it's really helpful not to think, oh, relationships has nothing to do with my spiritual practice. It is. Practice is your life. <laughs> practice is all of our lives. Yeah. 
And relationship with uh, drink and, and drugs is the other question in this wise view one. You know, as I said uh, earlier, I could sit up the front here, wave my big finger at you, do not drink. And you'd probably say, who are you? <laughs> I'll do what I want. Uh, and that's what I would do if somebody waved their finger at me. So hopefully I'm not doing that. But what I am doing is saying, interesting, look at it as a point of, you know, it, it's such a helpful area of life to look at that reflection. And some people doing this practice choose moderation with, you know, drink moderately. Others choose not to drink at all. And people have different views and think about that. But I find it fascinating that this list of wise actions comes from a tradition about two and a half thousand years ago, and it's so relevant. You know, where are the areas we get into trouble? It can be, you know, relationships that become harmful, it can become, in terms of our speech, becoming false, in terms of you know, misuse of drink and drugs, in terms of you know, taking what is not given. It's like they seem to be sort of quite universal areas of human life, transcending time and, and culture in this way. It's very interesting. Yeah. And then how do you, again, gosh, I'm just raising so many big questions tonight, aren't I, really? But then the big one. How do you then find a way, if you really relate to this path and practice, how, do, how can that be not separate from your livelihood, from your work? And there are all kinds of ways to do it. It certainly doesn't mean we've all got to be meditation teachers or yoga teachers or psychotherapists or anything. Many people choose those kind of things. But that, you know, that would be a rather narrow view of what this means. And it's very helpful to think, actually, we can make all kinds of things wise livelihood. The kind of examples people give is somebody who works in a shop. You imagine somebody works in a small shop. How are you with the customers who come in? There may be people in some shops, again, depending where you are, some of the people come in your shop may speak to nobody else that day. You may be surprised how much you might give to that person by smiling, acknowledging, how are you? Do you, want that? you know, it's, it's just interesting those little moments of interaction. If I, can conf if I can confess some of my bad-tempered moments, you know, you know these automatic tills that you do, the unexpected item in the bagging area, whatever it's called. I can find myself, it, it brings a bit of heat up for me. I'm like, oh, I want a person, you know. That's just me. I have to move with the times maybe, I don't know. <laughs> and maybe if we've got those, we'll have people doing other things. But It's interesting, I think, not, not to... Uh, underestimate what those the impact of those things on our lives those little moments of of doing that so whatever work you do you know is there a way you can make that an expression of your values if you were you know i don't know somebody was sweeping the roads again can really yeah can really taking care i'm giving something here all kinds of work we can do this with so the the, the shift of mindset is this is some horrible thing I'm only doing because I need the money. You probably all felt like that sometimes. But this is my opportunity to give. You know, a sense of service. There's a joy, a real joy in, in giving. It's, it's connection. 
Um, in this tradition, we you know, talk about the dana, generosity tradition. We we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of that tomorrow. But uh, at heart, it's around the joy of giving. I, I saw a picture of, um, I think it's some monks and nuns in, I think they were in Sri Lanka. I, it, I can't remember now exactly, but there was a, 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 a woman giving some uh, alms, you know, giving uh, food to the, to the nuns and monks in this photo and the joy on her face is extraordinary you know it's not oh somebody's got to feed this lot sitting around on their cushion but it's like ah oh, you know it's a joy to be able to give and I guess this is why it's tough you know when we're unemployed and again maybe that's many of you here may, may have that dukkha that struggle it's hard you know because we want to give. So there's that again. How, what, how can we find ways to make whatever work we're doing like that? You know, an expression of giving. So what we've spoken about so far, wise use. So seeing clearly opens the way for intentions of love and compassion. Yeah. Letting go, renunciation. We could talk more another time what that means. Yeah? these then express into the world how we speak our spiritual life is not divorced from everything we, how we speak, how we act it's flowing into that and the how, we, how we work yeah? and the last three of the path are the more uh, specifically meditative uh, elements of the path they call wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration so this is the effort to, to bring into being what's really beautiful, what's lovely. It's what we're doing here. This is wise effort. Coming on retreat is that. You know, this word in Pali, the word is bhavana, which means to cultivate. So it's like we're taking care of this. We're not just thinking, okay, I'd like to live with more compassion and love. Let's hope that turns up. But we can almost do some gardening to let those... Uh, plants blossom, let the flowers blossom of those. Yeah? So it's all of the efforts we do that is wise effort. Wise mindfulness again is obviously what we've been practicing today. Mindful of our bodies, our feelings, our changing states of mind. You know, this, this kind of present responsive awareness that can meet them. And uh, finally, what is called wise concentration or wise samadhi. Samadhi is the Pali word, which means to be gathered and collected and uh, you know, kind of a real sort of unifying of our state of mind. And I really wanted just to emphasize that as we come towards the end of the talk, which is you really have this possibility all of you <laughs> that and you know all of us that our minds can actually become more calm and more still it is possible for all of us to know really quite profound states of uh, peace of mind and you know i was said i wasn't going to wave my finger at you and tell you something but i think that's one thing i really really want to to really share with you because in the middle of a, 
a weekend retreat like this, and particularly when you come for the first day, you know, for people who've been doing this practice decades, the first day of the retreat is very often quite difficult because we've been busy and the mind is busy. But if your mind has been very, very busy today, I'd just really encourage you and really see that through the lens of not-self. This is not your mind as, as it is in some kind of essence. They're in patterns and sometimes they can be very strong and quite persistent, but they are not how your mind is in essence. Yeah. And so all of us, we actually do have a capacity to different degrees, to different extents, that our minds can become more gathered, more calm, more still. Uh, and it's, it's a, a really beautiful uh, quality. When we say, as I, I say all the time, you know when I say when your, your, our minds wander, that's just what they do, it's okay. That is true. And it's really helpful to know it's normal for the mind to wander. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. That is true. And at the same time, our minds do have a capacity. It might feel hidden at the moment, but we, they do have a capacity, at times at least, to be more calm, more centered, more gathered. You know? And that really, again, perhaps brings us right back to wise view, which is who do we think we really are? <laughs> yeah. It's easy in the middle of a day, I'm an anxious person. You know, there's an anxious state of mind around and we think, I'm an anxious person, I shouldn't come on retreat, it's not for me. It's for peaceful people like this, some old completely other group of people somewhere else. You know. I've got a busy mind. You know, there are obviously these other people who don't have busy minds, they're the meditators. But what if the anxiety, the busyness, the agitation was all surface? So it's like, it's like and we can mistake that, we can mistake the surface for who we really are. But the more we do this practice, we can trust actually, it's actually quite ephemeral. <laughs> It's on, the, it's on the surface, yeah? These thoughts, feelings, states of mind, they come and go, they come and go, they come and go. But also, there is with all of us a capacity to see those patterns and a capacity to really be very still. And in that stillness, then we can see more clearly, feeds back into the wise view as we see more clearly our intentions. Purify, you could say. And that flows into our lives, how we speak, act and work. And so our practice is never just for us. Yeah? You think about that. You're helping your friends and family by being here. The more you're in a uh, good space, we could say, <laughs> the more likely it is we're more there for others. So you know, our practice is always infused by this. Love for ourselves and love for others. Compassion for all. Yeah. So, yeah, as I said at the beginning, hopefully those are thoughts for your reflection. Yeah, stimulate your own uh, investigation into this life. Am I really the anxious person I think I am? You know, where is the real freedom in this life? How can I live in a way that really 
We live from that depth. Uh, questions to, to reflect on again and again. So if you just want to sit quietly just for, just for a minute or two, um, just as we come to the end of that. So if you want to just find a meditation posture, if you've been different. Oh, just allowing the echoes of the talk to just be there in the background and returning to the sense of this body, feeling the ground and the seat and feeling the breath, aware of the breath in the body. And just resting in the stillness of the evening. Just resting. 